you would remain standing for one more brief moment and open up with me to Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 1. Matthew chapter 21, starting in verse 1, as we celebrate this Palm Sunday and look forward to our hope of Easter. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, the words will be on the screen behind me, but let's read this and believe that it has something to say to us this morning. So it says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. Now this took place to fulfill what what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them, and they brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks, and he sat on them. Now most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the ground, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the ground. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And then Jesus entered the temple and he drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seat of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer. But you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to Jesus, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said, yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and he lodged there. Amen. You may be seated at this time. Well, I just want to welcome you again this morning to the White Oak Faith family. I'm so glad that you have chosen to worship with us this morning. Uh, If I have not had the pleasure of meeting you, my name is James Yandel, and I'm one of the pastors here at the church, and I'm just so glad that you're here. And I really do hope this morning that through the worship, through the music, through my message, uh, through the Lord's Supper, through the response, that you might find God and be able to follow Him in your life. I really do hope that God speaks to you today in a way that he has never spoken to you. I want you to imagine something with me this morning, and I'm kind of a visual guy, and so I invite you, if you feel comfortable, to close your eyes with me this morning. You don't have to do that, Uh, but I want to help you visualize something this morning, and that kind of helps me. All right, so let's get settled a little bit. Let's get our, our mindset. Imagine this morning that you are a Jew living in first century Palestine. And your bags are packed and you're ready to go on a journey. You're going on a pilgrimage. You pack up your kids, you pack up your family, and you begin to set out on this journey and you head east towards Jerusalem. You're going to celebrate the festival of Passover. 
And this is a festival that you've celebrated every single year that you can remember, celebrating what God did uh, for your ancestors 1,500 years ago when he brought them out of Egypt through Moses. And you celebrate it every year. This is one of the most important holidays that you celebrate as a Jew. And as you pass along the road and as you pass familiar sites, your, your mind can't help but wonder about your current overlords, the Romans. You pray every day that God would deliver you from the Roman overlords just as he did back 1,500 years ago from the Egyptian overlords. So you get on the road and you find that the road is actually kind of crowded, right? The road is crowded because thousands of thousands of other families are on the road with you to Jerusalem to celebrate this festival in Jerusalem. Everyone's headed to the temple to celebrate this holy week. But you're not the only one on the road. You're not the only one going to Jerusalem. Across the road, there's also someone coming toward Jerusalem, and his name is Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate is the Roman-appointed governor over Judea, over the land that you live in. And Pontius Pilate is also on his way to Jerusalem. And every time you think of his name, you spit on the ground, right? Because you think about the fact that Rome has Israel under its foot. And Pontius Pilate, the reason that he is coming to Jerusalem is not the same reason that you're coming to Jerusalem. Pontius Pilate is coming to Jerusalem to remind the people that they may worship God, but they better know who their true master is, and that is Rome. Pontius Pilate isn't coming to worship. He's coming for crowd control. He knows that when Jews get together in this city that sometimes revolts happen, and he's not going to let that happen. Continue to imagine with me. He rides on a war horse, and with him are legions of troops, people on chariots, war horses, uh, men with spears and swords, legions of troops. All these different people are coming with him, and he wants to inspire you in you awe and fear of the Roman Empire. And in fact, he's coming up behind you, so Roman soldiers push your family out of the way so that he can go through the main gate of the city. You can open your eyes now. I want you to imagine also around the same time, at a different gate of the city, something else is happening. There's another sort of parade, but it's not as big, not as pompous as this one. Instead of war horses, there's a donkey. Instead of soldiers, there are disciples. Instead of threats of war, there's a message of peace. This parade that we just read about in our passage is steeped in Old Testament prophetic symbolism about what God is going to do for his people. Crowds are around him shouting, Hosanna. Palm branches are being laid down on the ground like a red carpet. And I think we read this story so many times that we forget that what Jesus is doing is very, very intentional. Jesus is doing a demonstration. I feel like if Jesus were doing this today, if Jesus were coming into Houston at the midst of the height of a holy festival, if he were doing this today, you might call what he is doing a protest. And that's what I've entitled my sermon this morning, Jesus in Protest. 
before there were any of our modern protest movements, before there was a wa- uh, march on Washington, before there was Me Too, before there was uh, Occupy Wall Street, before there were any of these things, there was Palm Sunday protest. I remember when I was a kid and I celebrated Palm Sunday, I, uh, I celebrated right here in this church. It's kind of weird to think about that. Uh, 20 years ago or so, I came through this door right here and there were ushers and they handed me a palm branch, right? Because that's how we used to do it back in the day. They had ushers. They gave me the palm branch and I loved that because it meant I got to mess with the leaves while I was listening to the sermon. Uh, you know, just kind of breaking them off and stuff like that. So I, I apologize that we don't have that for you uh, this morning, but hopefully my sermon is engaging enough for you to listen. But I remembered, I loved that back in the day, but I did not realize that what Jesus was doing on Palm Sunday was a very public symbol of protest. With this public entry into Jerusalem, Jesus was clearly trying to make a statement. And I think we get used to church, we get used to Jesus, we get used to what he says, that we forget that he is a person who is challenging the status quo. He's a provocateur. He challenges the way that this world is. He challenges the systems of this world. And he reminds us that God has a better way. Jesus is protesting the status quo of this world. He is protesting the injustice. He is protesting abuse of power. He is protesting sin in this world that leads to brokenness. He is protesting anxiety. Jesus is not a conservative. Jesus is not preserving anything, but neither is he a progressive. He's not bringing in new ideas. Jesus is something else. Jesus is God. And Jesus is what happens when God, who has seen heaven, who has seen perfect goodness, comes down to earth. Jesus is trying to usher heaven on the earth. I love that we call this week Passion Week, right? It's not in the Bible, but we call it kind of Passion Week because I, I love that phrase because it describes Jesus perfectly. The opposite of passion is apathy. And if there's anything Jesus was not, it was apathetic. Jesus confronted religious leaders. Jesus made people so angry that they picked up stones to kill him. Jesus got up in the middle of parties and said, I am the resurrection and the life. I am living water. Literally interrupted a party, a festival to scream that out. Jesus was mocked, challenged, questioned, and threatened. From God's perspective, he died for the sins of the world, and that is true. But from a human perspective, he was executed because he dared to confront powerful people. Palm Sunday is a protest. And I think Palm Sunday is a great time for you and I to reflect on Jesus and the extent of what he has done in protest of a world that systematizes brokenness. I think Palm Sunday is a great time to reflect where we stand with Jesus. Are we willing to identify with Jesus in our day? How radical will we be with our love and with our holiness as we reflect on Jesus in the world? To what extent will we go to bring others into the peace of God? Are we passionate about what Jesus is passionate about?
At the end of my message, I'm going to ask you to do something, and it's going to get you out of your comfort zone, and I'll just tell you that right now. And so I hope that you spend with me the next 25, 30 minutes or so getting your heart prepared to walk in obedience to what God has for us this week as we look forward to Easter. Look back with me at verse 1 this morning. The word should be uh, on the screen behind me, but I encourage you to open it up in your Bible uh, as well. Verse 1, it says, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem, and they came to Bethpage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied in a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, the Lord needs him, and he will send them at once. All right, let's stop right there. So remember, Jesus is a good Jew. Jesus is a righteous Jewish man according to his humanity. And so like the other good and righteous Jews with him, he's going to celebrate Passover. He's going to celebrate with all the other Jews what's happening in this Passover festival week, right? And so Jesus is coming uh, from uh, Bethpage, and he's coming from the Mount of Olives, and he stops just outside of Jerusalem. And he tells some of his disciples, go forth and get a donkey and the colt who's with her, right? The, the, The foal that's with her. Untie them, and if anyone says, what are you doing? Say, the Lord needs them. And I always wondered about why this phrase came up. And if you look at one of the other Gospels, someone actually did ask them, why are you doing this? Why are you taking this donkey, right? And I read in one commentary that this could have been a secret code that Jesus had with his disciples and with the people that followed him. Like, the Lord needs them is almost like a code to say, it's about to go down. It's about to happen. Right? And so he tells them the Lord needs them. And they go and they get the donkeys. They bring it back to him. And Jesus sits on them. And then Matthew makes a point to remind us that in the Old Testament, in the book of Zechariah, it says uh, this, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey. Jesus would have known this. Jesus would have known about this Old Testament prophecy. And I think Jesus is being very intentional about the way that he enters into Jerusalem. Remember, Pilate also had to enter Jerusalem. And he comes in with all of his pomp, all of his circumstance. He comes in with his war horses, all these different things that we know from history. But Jesus is a different kind of king because Jesus has a different kind of kingdom. And so Jesus is coming in as a king, but one who brings peace. His ride in Jerusalem is steeped in this Old Testament hope that God will send a king of peace. So the disciples did this and the crowds meet him. And it's good to remember, I think, that Palm Sunday is almost like the Sunday when Jesus went public. Right before this, Jesus taught mainly in small towns— around Galilee. He never really taught in Jerusalem. He spent a lot of time in small towns. He spent a lot of time in the countryside. And yes, large crowds came to see him, but he never came to the big centers of his day. He never went to the big cities of his day until this moment. But knowing his time was near, Jesus made his grand entry into Jerusalem. In the middle of Passover— Knowing that Roman authorities, Jewish authorities, everybody would be watching. Jesus enters. And as I, re- as I reflect on this, I'm reminded that someone as countercultural as Jesus could not stay in the shadows forever. Jesus is too different, his message is too radical. The peace he offers is too powerful for him to stay underground. 
And I think that reminds us of something about ourselves, that there is no such thing as a secret follower of Jesus. You cannot be a secret disciple. In fact, at some point, you have to go public with Jesus. At some point, you have to publicly identify that you are a follower of Jesus. And I wonder this morning, do people outside of this room know that you're on Team Jesus? And I'm not talking just Facebook posts. I'm talking about people that you know and people that you interact with. Do they know that your hope is in Jesus and in his resurrection? At some point, you got to go public. You cannot keep that between you and your spouse forever. you got to go public because Jesus went public. The message is too powerful for us to keep to ourselves. This is what I like to imagine it as. Imagine you start dating someone. And uh, you know the progression according to Facebook, right? This is what happens when you start dating someone on Facebook. You start dating someone, and all of a sudden this person gets tagged in your pictures, right? So there's kind of group shots, and all of a sudden, let's say it's me, let's say a girl gets tagged in my photos. And this is kind of what happened with my wife and I, right? So all of a sudden, James shows up on Facebook, and there's some photos with him and a girl. And people are kind of like, I don't know, what's, what's going on over there, right? And they kind of drop in hands, like, what, what's going on with that? Oh, we're just, we're just friends. Yeah, we're just friends. We're just hanging out together, right? That's the first step. Then the second step, there's a picture with just the two of you. Now it's like, oh, all right, guy, girl, friends, you don't get a picture just with the two of you, right? So there's this progression. People begin to, to think about, man, are, are they actually an item? Are they just friends? What's happening? And then there's what? What's the last step of the process? Facebook official, right? You go Facebook official with it, right? All of a sudden, the status changes, right? And then everyone's commenting on that. That's just the way it goes in our day. If it's not Facebook official, then you're not officially dating, right? And in fact, I would actually take it one step farther. Once you do get married, the last step, the final step, is when you're, you have the same profile picture, right? The both of you have the same profile picture. I think Pastor John and Halsey are guilty of that. I try not to do that with my wife, right? But that's like you finally have become one. You have the same profile picture. But anyway, that's besides the point. But the point is, at some point, you got to go public with it. At some point, you have to let people know that you're with this person. And I think it's the same with Jesus. Jesus calls us to be bold. Jesus calls us to publicly identify with him. And we're going to talk about the different ways that we do that. But first, you've got to commit to going public with Jesus. If you're a follower of Jesus in here, you're different. Let me break the ice to you. If no one's ever told you before, you are different. You are a reformer. You meet in church buildings and sing songs. No one else does that. You meet in people's homes for fellowship and for prayer. You hold hands and you pray with people. That's weird. That's different. You spend your free time serving people at church or out in your neighborhood. You read an ancient book and you try to live by it. That is different. Let me just tell you, you got to own it. 
I remember the day in high school when I was uh, with my friends and I, I sort of publicly identified as Jesus. I just owned it. I said, yeah, I go to church. I'm a Jesus follower. I felt my face going flush. But after I did that, I felt a weight lift off my shoulders. I was like, man, I feel good now. I, I am who I am. I'm a follower of Jesus. And the Bible talks a lot about being bold for Jesus, but it also talks a lot about the opposite, which is being ashamed The Bible talks a lot about what it means to be ashamed. Uh, Definitionally, being ashamed means that we are unwilling, are restrained because of fear of shame, ridicule, ridicule, or disapproval. God doesn't want you to be restrained by fear, but to be empowered by confident boldness. The Bible talks a lot about shame. Jesus says in Luke chapter 9, verse 26, he says, If anyone is ashamed of me and my message, the Son of Man will be ashamed of the person when he returns in his glory and in the glory of the Father and the holy angels. I think what Jesus is saying, that the opinion of God is worth infinitely more than the opinion of people. Who do, whose opinion do we care most about? Second Timothy, Second Timothy chapter 1 verse 7 says, For God has not given us a spirit of fear or timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. So never be ashamed to tell others about our Lord. And don't be ashamed of me, this is the Apostle Paul speaking, either, even though I'm in prison for him. With the strength that God gives you, be ready to suffer with me for the sake of of the good news. And so here we have Jesus saying, don't be ashamed of me. And here you have Paul saying, the way that we won't be ashamed of Jesus is because God supplies us with the boldness to publicly identify with him. Remember the disciples. Remember when they were following Jesus. Yeah, here they're bold and they're powerfully proclaiming the, people, or the kingdom of God. But then later on, when Jesus is taken into custody, all the disciples fled him. The Bible makes a point to say that. But then after Jesus dies, is resurrected, and then Pentecost happens, the disciples were out in front of the crowds proclaiming the kingdom of God. It's because they had the Holy Spirit in them. Romans chapter 1 verse 16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God at work, saving everyone who believes, the Jew first and also the Gentile. So we're called to be bold, not just for ourselves, but because we know that in the gospel, there's power. We're called to publicly identify with Jesus because we know that there is no better way. I wonder this morning, when you're with people who don't go to church, who aren't like you, are you ashamed of the name Jesus? Are you ashamed to thank God for a meal when other people who aren't Christians are present? Are we ashamed to explain why we're different, why we don't cuss, why we do this in our marriage? Are we ashamed to explain that to people who ask? We're called to be bold and to publicly identify with Jesus. So what are some of the benefits? Very quickly, uh, being bold does three things. First, being bold brings honor to Jesus. Number two, being bold inspires others to honor Jesus. Like, you probably have no idea that there are people looking into your life, taking cues from what you do. I know it's weird to think about that, but there are people around you, in your family, in your church, uh, at your work, in your neighborhood. Your neighbors, people are looking at you, looking at your life, trying to see what you're about. And when you live a life that honors Jesus publicly, you inspire them. 
No one's inspired by someone who is the same, but by people who are different. And then number three, boldness breaks through the noise. Authenticity is the name of the game in our day. And if we're going to inspire a world with the hope of Jesus Christ, we cannot look like the world. No one's inspired when we are moved by the same things that people outside the church are moved by. No one's inspired when they're pursuing money and we're also pursuing money. People are inspired when we say Jesus is our only hope. Jesus is our life. Let me tell you about him. Jesus was bold in order to bring peace to the world, and we can go bold to bring peace to someone's life. Look with me at verse 8. Let's continue on in our passage a little bit. It says, Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the ground. So remember, Jesus is entering into Jerusalem. The crowds are around him, and they're laying down a red carpet, right? And so it says, they, uh, Others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road, and the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David. And it goes on and it says that the whole city was stirred up by this. In fact, Jesus is almost stealing the show from the Passover festival. He's stealing the show from Pilate and Herod and all the Roman authorities. And the whole city is stirred up saying, who is this man? And the crowd say, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And I love what Jesus does next. This is what I call crunk Jesus. Anytime Jesus does something like this, it's crunk Jesus. Jesus did this. He enters the temple. And you'd expect someone like Jesus to go in, be quiet, pray, maybe teach a sermon, something like that. But Jesus goes in. He gets mad. He drives out all the people who are buying and selling in the temple. He starts throwing over tables. And he says, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. If Palm Sunday begins a protest week for Jesus that ultimately culminates on the cross and over his resurrection, then I think it begins here. Jesus' first stop in his protest is the temple. And that's very, very important for us. Because if Jesus is a reformer, it's good to remember that Jesus didn't go to the city center first. He went to the religious center first. And I think sometimes as Christians, we forget that reform starts with us. Reform doesn't start in our culture. As much as we want our culture to change, as much as we want our culture to follow Jesus, Jesus didn't go to his culture first. He went to the religious center first. As much as, us, as much as some of us want to change politics, Jesus didn't go to the political center. He went to the religious center. And I think the reason Jesus did that is because Jesus wants to change his people first. And he wants his people to be a city on a hill that draws others into it. Think about what Jesus found when he entered into the temple. First of all, I found people buying and selling and exchanging goods. And what happened here is you have people entering into the temple from the pilgrimage. And part of the Passover festival was to sacrifice an animal. And so what you had is you had people here set up in the temple to try to take advantage of everyone who came to, to deliver a sacrifice, right? So they're overcharging people for these animals. They're doing all these shady things. They have balances that don't balance out well. They're doing all these things. And that angers Jesus. 
It angers Jesus that people would turn his place of worship into a place of thievery and robbery. And then I was also like kind of preparing for the sermon, and I was reading one scholar say that in fact, probably the place where these people had set up their place to buy and sell was in the very part of the outer courts of the temple that only the non-Jews could enter, right? And so when you think about the temple, only Jews could enter into kind of the, the inner parts of the temple, but Gentiles, people like you and I, could not enter into that part of the temple. There was a designated place for them. And a lot of scholars believe that these people had set up their marketplace in the very place that the Gentiles could go. So Jesus is saying this is a place for all people, not just for a few. Reform doesn't start in our culture. It starts in our hearts. And we have to have a different value system than the world. We don't worship the cult of self. We don't worship the cult of money. We worship Jesus, and that means our values should be different than the world around us. So here at our church, uh, a lot of times we ask ourselves, what makes us different? And if I had to sum it up in three different things, I would say it would be these three things. Bold gospel, deep discipleship, and real family. These are three of our values that make us different in our day. And as you think about leaning into the church, as you think about being a part of our church, or if you're wondering what we're about, we're about these three things. And we as members of our church are called to lean into these things. Number one, we believe a bold gospel. We believe that your past is irrelevant. All that matters is what God is doing in you today and in the future. We believe in radical grace. We believe that the Bible invites all people into the hope and freedom that Jesus offers. We believe in a bold gospel. We're not a country club. We are a place for the sick to come and find healing. And every one of us is called to believe that and reflect that in the way that we act. Number two, deep discipleship. If you're wondering what our church is about, we want to be real disciples of Jesus. We want to look at his word and we want to look at our lives and we want to try to bring those two things into unison and into harmony. We believe that Jesus has deep things for us, so we want to follow him into deep discipleship. And then number three, we're real family. We want to be real family here. We don't want to be fake church. We want what we have here to be different than anywhere else in the world. People who know each other, people who help each other, people who pray for one another, people who give up their possessions for the sake of helping one another. We want to be a real family in this place. So as we're bold for Jesus, we're going to talk about what it means for us to uh, declare that we're bold to Jesus to people around us, but we also need to have lives that reflect Jesus and that reflect his goodness for us. So if you're in here this morning, my encouragement to you is to stop trying to shape the culture of the world. Just contribute to this counterculture, this counter-value system in your own life and in your church. What I love about this parade that Jesus has is that the whole city was asking, who is this? Who is Jesus? And it was their boldness that caused them to ask that question. In fact, from time to time, I get around other pastor friends in this city or get around other people who are part of other churches or or maybe just people outside of the church. And sometimes they've heard about White Oak and they ask, like, what's 
going on over there? I, I hear things are going on. I see some things on Facebook, and it inspires them. It inspires them to see people stepping up into leadership. It inspires them to see people getting baptized. It inspires them to see people conforming their life around Jesus. And they're asking, they're asking, what's happening here? There's power in example. And there's power in your life when you reflect Jesus and when you follow him fully. People notice and they ask. Look at verse 14. It says, And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. These are the religious leaders. They were angry. And they said to him, Do you hear what these people are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you never read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city of Bethany and he lodged there. What I love about what Jesus does is that Jesus goes into the temple and yeah, he's overthrowing tables, but he's also healing the sick. He's also inviting people into the kingdom. He spoke for them. He was always inviting people into his peace. He celebrated every single person who came to him, no matter how old or young or messed up. So on the one side, you have the Pharisees, and they're trying to keep people out of the kingdom of God. And on the other side, you have Jesus beckoning everyone. Come, the peace of God is for everyone in the world. And I think Jesus' example to us is a really good example about how do we go public? How do we go public for Jesus in this world? We're bold. We want to go public. How do we do it? Jesus gives us an example. And I think it's this. We are called to go public through invitations, not just declarations. Sometimes I think we think going bold for Jesus means posting statuses on Facebook that tell people how it is. We post statuses on Facebook that tell people what we believe and what we're against. We tell people that we're against gay marriage. We tell people that we're against abortion. We tell people that we're against the culture of this world. Everybody knows what we're against. Everybody already knows that. I think what people need to know is what we are for, that we're for them. Think about protest movements, whatever it is, Me Too or some of the the bigger ones from the past. The goal of every protest movement is not just to let people know what you're for, but to invite people into that protest movement. And I think that's what Jesus does. It's not us against them. It's us for them. It's the gospel for them. And we're called to be agents of that. This week, as I said, is Passion Week. And I really encourage you to do some reading about what Jesus did each of those days because I think what you're going to find is that each of those days, Jesus was doing something to invite more people into the work that he was about to do on the cross. And this week, I believe, is one of the greatest opportunities that we have to invite people into the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Next Sunday is Easter. It is statistically the highest attended Sunday of the entire year. It beats Christmas, it beats Thanksgiving, it beats Mother's Day, it beats everything else. 
Easter is the highest attended Sunday of the year. And I believe that if we're going to believe in a bold gospel, that we must also believe in bold invitations. Let me give you some statistics. I'll throw these up on the screen. 82% of people invited to an Easter service say they are likely to attend. Only 2% of church members regularly invite people. 7 out of 10 unchurched people have never been invited to church. And this is to me, the most startling one, 2% of people who attend church will do so because of a church advertisement. But 86% of people who attend will do so because they were invited by someone they personally know. I think all of us expect that someone else is going to reach our friend or someone else is going to reach our neighbor. Someone else is going to say something to our coworker. But if the statistics are true, it only happens when we are the ones who share the gospel and invite people into what God is doing. You should have been given one of these when you came in, and it's just a simple Easter invitation card. You're invited to Easter. We've got some nice family. Some of y'all in here actually on here. Um, what I want you to do this week is I want you to carry this card with you I want you to pray that God would provide you an opportunity. And when that opportunity comes, I want you to say something very simple like, hey, I'm not sure if you have any plans for Easter, but I'd love to invite you to come with me to my church. That simple. You don't need to invite perfectly. What I love about this story is when the crowds were saying, who is this man? Who is Jesus? They kind of get it wrong, right? Right? They're like, Jesus is the great prophet, is what they said. So in fact, they kind of got it wrong. They didn't fully understand who Jesus was. And yet all they knew is that when people get around Jesus, their life changes. And maybe for you, you're not sure exactly how to articulate this with people. But you know what? You say, man, when people get around Jesus, they change. When I got around Jesus, I changed. We don't have to invite perfectly. We just have to be obedient and calling people into the kingdom of God. So we draw to a close this morning. Um, like confession time. I debated whether or not I was going to share this story because it's kind of like really humbling for myself, but I figured anything that humbles me is good, so I will share this confession time with you guys. Um, I just want you to know that I have the first place for the worst invitation of the year. Like, you cannot beat me. If you think you're going to have a worse invitation than I did, you cannot beat me. Let me share you my story. So I think I'm kind of a tech guy, right? I think of myself as a tech guru. I, I know a lot about the internet. I know a lot about systems and stuff like that. And, and uh, what I wanted to do for our church is I wanted to find a way to invite some people to Easter who have sort of visited our church in the past, or maybe they're not coming uh, anymore. Maybe they visited once with a family member. And I just wanted to send just a, a little invitation this, to them and say, hey, you know what? I'd love for you to come and join us on Easter Sunday, right? So it sounded like a good idea. And I'm the kind a guy that reads my email that I'm going to send someone like 20 times. Anyone else do that, right? You read it 20 times. You make sure there's no mistakes in there. You make sure you haven't had any like grammatical errors. You read it out loud. And I do that for every single email that I send. So I crafted this email. 
And I felt pretty good about it, right? I felt really, really good about this email. Man, just, it hurts me as I share this. And it was a perfect email, so good. And I wanted to do it through the system that we use called MailChimp, which is a way that you can send out emails in bulk to people. <laughs> and I sent it to 80 people, and it was a perfect email, except I sent the wrong template. I sent the welcome to launch team template to these 80 people. I'm sure you've gotten that before if you signed up for launch team. It says really big, welcome to launch team. Thank you so much for signing up for it. We're going to reach out to you soon to talk about where you can serve, right? I sent this email to 80 people out there who have probably visited our church once or twice. And I remember I, I was sitting back there, and I did it, and I, I remember I, I ran to John's office. I went in, and I said, John, I, I messed up. <laughs> That's what I said. I, I sent the email to the wrong people. And I was trying to debate what to do, and I did send a follow-up email. It was so humbling. I was like, oops, technology is hard. I said something like that. So sorry. We would love to have you for Easter or whatever. <laughs> I'm not going to call myself the tech guy anymore. (laughs) But you know what happened in response to that? One person signed up for launch team. (laughs) (laughs) One person asked about our community groups and said, hey, I want to join one. And then one person asked about Easter. Now I'm suspicious about what God is doing through my mistakes, right? (laughs) You ain't going to get your invitation perfect. But trust me, God will do something with it. God is working. He will do something with the imperfect invitations.